Good morning. Before we start, I have three things that I need to mention. There's a little bit of detail, but please try to follow with me as I go through these, because it is important that we, uh, we all hear these items. The first is about what happens at the end of the service. If you've been here in recent weeks, you'll know that we haven't really been terribly officious uh, about the mingling that goes on afterwards, because we know that having a chat is one of the things we all love most about church, and we have been quite relaxed about that. But you'll be aware that this week the regulations have changed somewhat. We're still allowed to meet, thankfully. But the rules about mingling afterwards have tightened up quite a bit, and so we just can't keep doing things the way we have been doing them. So at the end, I'd ask, please, just to be conscious about not circulating around the room in here or gathering in groups, and that applies then to outside the church as well, at the front of the church. So if you just uh, stay in your seat at the end, please, someone will come and dismiss you so that we're able to leave in an orderly fashion and uh, maintain things the way they're supposed to be. And we can all admit this is not the way we would like to do things, but for the time being we have to. So thank you for just bearing with us on that. <clears throat> and then uh, we are meeting again this evening at 6 p.m. where we will be returning to Matthew's Gospel and uh, we'll also be sharing the Lord's Supper together this evening, and you're uh, very welcome to join us for that. And then the last thing I need to mention is for a few weeks now, we've been making noises about possibly going to two morning services, and each week more of you have been coming back, and we are delighted about that. And we've now reached our capacity in terms of fitting in and also being able to keep to the guidelines about distance. This uh, rearrangement of the chairs was kind of our last effort to fit a few more chairs in. And so having reached our capacity uh, next Sunday, we are going to be moving to two identical services in the morning. And the evenings will continue as normal. Many of you have already let me know which service you would plan to come to. Thank you for doing that. So what will happen is this week... During the week, I'm going to send out three different emails. If you told me you're hoping to come to the 9.30 service, I will send you an email confirming that with you. If you signed up to come to the 11.15 service, I will send you an email confirming that. And those of you who said you would be very happy to come to either service, I will allocate you to one or the other, and, and you'll receive the email about that particular service. And then a third email will go out to those of you who haven't yet responded, just to remind you what the two options are, and then you can come to whichever of those you like. Hopefully that's clear. If it's not, please ask me or one of the other elders at the end. And then just to add a couple of details, those of you with children in Sunday school, there will only be Sunday school at the 1115 service. And those of you who are watching online, the 11.15 service will be the one that's streamed. Both services will be the same, but we'll only stream one of the morning services. So please don't expect to join us online any earlier than 11.15. 
Thank you all for your patience, not just for listening to me right now, but for your patience with these new arrangements. They're not ideal for anyone, I can assure you of that, but we do want everyone to be able to come. We want visitors to be able to come, and when you come, we want you to feel confident that we are trying to do things carefully and safely, and this is the best way that we can do that. So please pray this week, ask for God's help, and then as of next week, you will be able to bring visitors, as many as you want. There will be plenty of space for them. Before we start, let's be quiet for a moment. Let's remember we have been talking about things that are important in their place, but now we're going to turn to the one who is most important. Let's just take a moment to focus on our God. Now let's stand and read together from the book of Hebrews in the New Testament some verses from Hebrews that remind us who we have come to worship. If you'll stand with me, please. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Again, the musicians are going to lead us in a song in praise of our glorious Christ.
God, we thank you for our glorious Savior, glorious in his power, glorious equally in his humility and his self-sacrifice, and glorious now today in his risen, reigning majesty. We bow before him as our King. And we know that as your people, the only thing that can bring us together and keep us together is to focus on him, to have a joyful preoccupation with him above all else. And so we ask this morning that you will help us, help us to be captivated not by our own ambitions, not by our own problems. Help us to be captivated with our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the treasure of our hearts. Pray that you will remind us of that this morning. Amen. 
Our next song is an expression of that conviction that Christ is our treasure and he is ours forevermore.
One of the things that we do in the name of Christ every year is to support the Operation Christmas Child appeal, the shoeboxes. Now, it's a long time to Christmas, I realize, but it's, uh, we always start this early so we can get the boxes ready in good time. So we're going to have a video now, which I think includes Alan giving, Alan is here, but I don't think he's going to come to the front, is that right? Alan will appear behind me, larger than life, and he will explain to you what's going on this year with the shoeboxes. So we'll watch this together. Every day is becoming more of a challenge to get out there. Rain's coming in heavier and heavier. Roads are sliding away. How do you cross that hurdle? And we're still trying to just plow through this and get to people. Let's go. We hear gunshots, we hear bombs. It's been an honor to serve with some of these people who left their own families behind to come here with the risk of not knowing whether they would come back home or not. Ebola has now become a part of the world. Our staff are submerged in press with gold where nobody dared to go. Everything is gone. We've got nothing. To see that somebody could lose everything within just a few minutes is heartbreaking. Disasters come, storms come. Every time we see the news in the morning, I'm always asking myself, I wonder if Samaritan's Purse can make a difference in that situation. Samaritan's Purse, we go to the hard places of the world, we go to the remote places of the world, and then when we are there, we meet their emergency needs. Amen. When people ask us, why are you doing this? I say to them, we are only showing you the love of Christ. You see, I don't believe we ever back up. We don't surrender. We don't give in. I've had people say, why don't you wait till they come to you? No, we go to them. Go ye therefore into all the world to make disciples. You've got to be willing in your heart to give it all up. Surrender everything. Operation Christmas Child, we're evangelizing, discipling, and multiplying across the globe. God's going to take you on a journey of faith, step by step. But our goal is to go along and let them see who we truly are. Let them see our actions, and we're going to minister to everyone. What part of the world are you going to make a mark for Jesus Christ? Jesus Christ didn't run away. We run to the fire, we don't run away from it. People from all tongues, tribes, and nations will come to faith. Hello, everyone. Good morning. And yes, it's shoebox time again. In the present situation, the question's naturally arisen. Is it possible or even practical to try to run a shoebox appeal this year? Well, as we've seen on the video, the Samaritan's Purse charity have been serving in crisis situations for many years. And this is what they have said about COVID-19. The COVID-19 global pandemic has disrupted everyday life for millions of people around the world. 
Yet Samaritan's Purse continues to share the eternal hope of the gospel and to serve in Jesus' name. We want boys and girls around the world to know that God loves them and has not forgotten them during this time of fear and uncertainty. Children need great joy now, more than ever. Most of all, they need the hope found only in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So everything is getting organised to ensure the boxes are collected and delivered to where they are needed in a safe way. So we want to encourage you to get involved again and to do what you can. It might be a bit more complicated this year, but it's certainly not impossible. We've got boxes and leaflets available. You'll find those in the entrance porch. Please take what you can. We haven't made up the boxes this year. You'll have to do that yourself. Um, but there's no charge for the boxes. And if we run out, we can get some more for next week. Please read the leaflet and see what you can and can't send. And uh, if you need any further ideas, well, Mary's been out shopping and she can share with you just now one or two of the things that she's found. Hello, I'd like to show you a few ideas for your shoe boxes this year. Uh, most of these have come from B&M, Home Bargains, Wilkinson's and various supermarkets. Uh, a few suggestions for a two to four. I've got a spinning top, a green tractor and some Thomas the Tank Engine dominoes. If you're doing the box for 10 to 14, if it's for a boy, possibly some marbles or some juggling balls. If it's for a girl, you may like to put in uh, a pretty bracelet or some beads. Uh, don't forget cuddly toy. Cuddly toy can go into all age boxes. Uh, a hat, a nice colourful hat. Uh, some games. I've got tiddlywinks, a yo-yo and a small box of Connect Four. Uh, hygiene items are always good. Uh, a bar of soap wrapped a brush or a comb. Here I've got a flannel and I've just popped inside a toothbrush. If you're going to put in some stationary items, if you can get a pencil case and pop in a rubber, a pencil sharpener, some coloured crayons or pens and pencils or maybe a painting set. Um, don't forget paper, a notepaper or notebook. Uh, you might like to put in a picture of yourself and your family. Uh, please don't include large items of clothing. Uh, smaller items are fine, age-related for the box that you're doing. And not large blankets because they will dominate the box. Uh, the idea is that the box is full of fun-related toys and items that will delight the child that's opening the shoebox. If it is difficult for you to completely fill a box, please bring along whatever you can and we can make use of every item. Thank you. If you want to be involved but are not able to make up a box yourself, Samaritan's Purse do run a facility called Shoebox Online. This is where you can um, virtually, as it were, online pack your own shoebox uh, but volunteers will actually pack it uh, for you with the things that you have selected. If you want to do this, you can go to the Samaritan's Purse website 
and uh, find Shoebox Online. It's uh, very clear on the first page there. And you can click and you can select various items. You can either ask them to just do a default box, a standard box, or you can pack your own shoebox. And if you select that, you can, you can say whether it's for a boy or a girl and choose the age. And then you can select items. The essentials pack is essential hygiene items. Then you can select various toys that you may want to use, uh, send. Here's a football and a pump. And uh, then some other small toys that you may want to select to go in your box. And then maybe a hat, some gloves. And there's a calculator going in our box here. And at the end you can add a photo of yourselves if you want to and you can also send your own personal message and that will go in your box as well along uh, with the presents that you have selected. We'll be collecting the boxes in on Sunday November the 15th. I think that's eight or nine weeks away. Please bring boxes on that date, not before. And will you please pray that many children will be blessed with the boxes and more importantly with the message of salvation, with the love of the Lord Jesus. And pray also that all involved will be kept safe and that the boxes will reach their destinations. Thank you very much. So I think that covers the details. Um, thanks, Alan and Mary, for putting that together for us. At this point, the Sunday School are going to be uh, leaving to continue their worship next door. And the creche is also open, I think, if uh, parents want to use that. If you'll turn with me, please, to Judges chapter 8. Judges 
Judges chapter 8 drops us right in the middle of an unfinished situation. This morning we're going to meet lots of sweaty, out-of-breath people. And the reason they're sweaty and out-of-breath and hungry is because they've just been blessed by God with miraculous success. Two weeks ago, we heard the Israelites crying out to the Lord for help. And the reason they were crying out was the Midianites. The Midianites came with a vast army. They came every year to pillage Israel's crops and to do other even more unpleasant things as well. And because of the Midianites, the Israelites were oppressed and they were impoverished. And in His mercy, God did something about the situation. He raised up a deliverer called Gideon. And last week we saw how God caused the Israelites to rally to Gideon And through Gideon and a tiny army of 300, God gave victory to Israel. It was a miraculous victory. And when we left the scene last week, the decimated Midianite army were on the run. They were racing to get back where they'd come from across the Jordan River. The Israelites came from all over to join Gideon and his 300 men. Among those new arrivals were warriors from the tribe of Ephraim. The Ephraimites captured two of the Midianite leaders, Oreb and Zeb. The Ephraimites removed Oreb and Zeb's heads. They tied a ribbon around them, and they presented them to Gideon on the banks of the Jordan. Okay, there probably wasn't a ribbon involved. Because even as they deliver this present to Gideon, the Ephraimites are not happy at all. So we're going to read, picking up at that point from chapter 8, verse 1, through to the end of the chapter. Now the Ephraimites asked Gideon, why have you treated us like this? Why didn't you call us when you went to fight Midian? And they challenged him vigorously. But he answered them, what have I accomplished compared to you? Aren't the gleanings of Ephraim's grapes better than the full grape harvest of Abiezer? God gave Oreb and Zeb, the Midianite leaders, into your hands. What was I able to do compared to you? At this, their resentment against him subsided. Gideon and his 300 men, exhausted, yet keeping up the pursuit, came to the Jordan and crossed it. He said to the men of Succoth, Give my troops some bread, they're worn out, and I'm still pursuing Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. But the officials of Succoth said, Do you already have the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna in your possession? Why should we give bread to your troops? Then Gideon replied, just for that, when the Lord has given Zeba and Zalmanah into my hand, I will tear your flesh with desert thorns and briars. From there he went up to Peniel and made the same request of them, but they answered as the man of Succoth had. So he said to the man of Peniel, when I return in triumph, I will tear down this tower. 
Now, Ziba and Zalmana were in Karkor with a force of about 15,000 men, all that were left of the armies of the eastern peoples. 120,000 swordsmen had fallen. Gideon went up by the route of the nomads east of Nobah and Jogbeha and attacked the unsuspecting army. Ziba and Zalmana, the two kings of Midian, fled, but he, captured, he pursued them and captured them, routing their entire army. Gideon, son of Joash, then returned from the battle by the pass of Perez. He caught a young man of Succoth and questioned him. And the young man wrote down for him the names of the 77 officials of Succoth, the elders of the time. Then Gideon came and said to the men of Succoth, Here are Ziba and Zalmunna, about whom you taunted me by saying, Do you already have the hands of Ziba and Zalmunna in your possession? Why should we give bread to your exhausted men? He took the elders of the town and taught the men of Succoth a lesson by punishing them with desert thorns and briars. He also pulled down the tower of Peniel and killed the men of the town. Then he asked Ziba and Zalmana, What kind of man did you kill at Tabor? Men like you, they answered each one with the bearing of a prince. Gideon replied, those were my brothers, the sons of my own mother. As surely as the Lord lives, if you had spared their lives, I would not kill you. Turning to Jether, his eldest son, he said, kill them. But Jether did not draw his sword because he was only a boy and was afraid. Ziba and Zalmana said, come, do it yourself. As is the man, so is his strength. So Gideon stepped forward and killed them and took the ornaments off their camels' necks. The Israelites said to Gideon, rule over us, you, your son and your grandson, because you have saved us from the hand of Midian. But Gideon told them, I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And he said, I do have one request, that each of you give me an earring from your share of the plunder. It was the custom of the Ishmaelites to wear gold earrings. They answered, we'll be glad to give them. So they spread out a garment, and each of them threw a ring from his plunder onto it. The weight of the gold rings he asked for came to 1,700 shekels, not counting the ornaments, the pendants, and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian, or the chains that were on their camels' necks. Gideon made the gold into an ephod, which he placed in Ophrah, his time. All Israel prostituted themselves by worshiping it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and his family. Thus, Midian was subdued before the Israelites and did not raise its head again. During Gideon's lifetime, the land had peace for 40 years. Jeroboam, son of Joash, went back home to live. He had 70 sons of his own, for he had many wives. His concubine, who lived in Shechem, also bore him a son, whom he named Abimelech. Gideon, son of Joash, died at a good old age and was buried in the tomb of his father Joash in Ophrah of the Abizrites. 
No sooner had Gideon died than the Israelites again prostituted themselves to the Baals. They set up Baal Berith as their god and did not remember the Lord their God who had rescued them from the hands of all their enemies on every side. They also failed to show any loyalty to the family of Jerubbaal, that is, Gideon, in spite of all the good things he had done for them. This is God's Word. And it gives us a question to consider. The question is this. What is worse than an invading army? The Lord has just delivered Israel from an invading army. But in this passage, we do not see shiny, happy people holding hands. The external threat to Israel has been removed. In that sense, there is peace in the land. And the text tells us that peace lasts for 40 years. But in this passage, we do not find a peaceful situation. When we ask the question, what is worse than an invading army? The answer of Judges chapter 8 is that disease on the inside is worse than an invading army. In this passage, we find three signs of disease on the inside, the inside of Israel. First, among the people themselves in Israel, we find devotion to self-importance and self-preservation. In verse 1, we meet the Ephraimites. These are Israelites whose devotion to self-importance has turned them into overly sensitive divas. No sooner have they caught up with Gideon and tossed him the heads of Oreb and Zeb. No sooner have they done that than the Ephraimites start yelling at Gideon for treating them so badly. They object to being called out for the mop-up operation rather than for the initial attack on the Midianites. Do they have a point? Well, the text does confirm they were not included in the initial call-up. But there's a pretty obvious reason for that. If we were to look at a map of Israel at that time, we would see that Ephraim is the most southern of the northern tribes of Israel. Ephraim's territory is not close to the Jezreel Valley where the Midianites had camped. The territories of Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali were clustered much closer to Jezreel. It makes sense that those tribes were called first. But in any case, considering that Ephraim has played a part in this rout of the Midianites, they're being way too sensitive about who got called up first. Israel has just won a battle against an external enemy who was ravaging Israel. And rather than being content to play their part on the team, the Ephraimites are complaining about who got picked first for the team. The definition of a diva is a self-important person who is temperamental and difficult to please. And that seems to describe the Ephraimites perfectly. 
And sometimes it describes me pretty well too. I can get all bent out of shape about things that really are non-issues. I can get offended about things I have no call to get offended about. And when that happens, the root of it is almost always self-importance. How dare they treat me like that? How dare he treat me like that? So this is a very direct challenge to me personally. And then the question is, does this ring any bells for you also? Do you ever get angry because you feel you're not getting the respect you deserve? Maybe someone else has been given a little more praise or a little more responsibility than you have. And you feel the urge to stamp your feet and throw your toys out of the pram. When we as God's people give in to those sinful urges... It is worse than an invading army. It does more damage than an attack coming from outside the church. So let's ask God to help us get over our moments of overblown self-importance for His glory. Well, here in Judges 8, Gideon has just been on the end of the reaction of the Ephraimites, and he decides to respond by using flattery. Verse 2, he answered them, what have I accomplished compared to you? Aren't the gleanings, that's the leftovers of Ephraim's grapes, better than the full grape harvest of Abiezer? That's Gideon's uh, clan. God gave Oreb and Zeb, the Midianite leaders, into your hands. What was I able to do compared to you? At this, their resentment against him subsided. Now, I think we might well question whether pandering to the Ephraimites is the best approach here. But Gideon is in a hurry. The Ephraimites have given him the heads of Oreb and Zeb, but as we'll see... Those are the wrong two heads as far as Gideon's concerned. Those are not the heads he wants. So rather than do any counseling with the Ephraimites about dealing with their self-importance, Gideon just butters them up. It's quicker that way. He tells them what they want to hear. Then he and his 300 men get to go on their way across the Jordan River in pursuit of the remaining Midianites. Verse 4 tells us Gideon and his men are exhausted at this point. So when they come to Succoth, which is an Israelite town, it's important to note, this is in the territory of Gad, and so Gideon is expecting some help from his fellow Israelites in Succoth. Verse 5, he said to the man of Succoth, give my troops some bread, they're worn out, and I'm still pursuing Zeba and Zalmanah, the kings of Midian. But the officials of Succoth said, Do you already have the hands of Zeba and Zalmanah in your possession? Why should we give bread to your troops? After leaving the Ephraimites, 
and their self-importance back on the banks of the Jordan, now Gideons run into people who are devoted to self-preservation. We'll find out shortly, the people of Succoth have just watched 15,000 Midianites cross the Jordan ahead of Gideon and head out for the hills. Now granted, that's just a tiny fraction of what the Midianites started out with. Their numbers have been decimated. But still, 15,000 Midianites are a lot more than Gideon's 300. And looking at the 300, they're dead on their feet at this point. So the people of Succoth do a quick calculation. If you do catch up to the Midianites, Gideon, chances are they'll kill you, and then when they find out we helped you, they'll come back here and kill us too. So, sorry, Gideon, but unless you've already won, and you can prove it by producing the hands of Ziba and Zalmanna, we are not going to help you. This thing about the hands, it could mean have you cut off their hands, or it might just mean do you have them by the hand? Do you have them with you? Either way, this is not really a question. What the people are saying is, you haven't yet captured Ziba and Zalmanna, so there is no way we're going to risk our necks by helping you. The people of Succoth are hedging their bets. They're trying to protect themselves by refusing to get involved. Gideon and his men are out on their feet. But instead of helping, these fellow Israelites in Succoth just back away. They won't produce so much as a Mars bar to help Gideon and his men. Maybe you and I shake our heads when we see that. But aren't there times we can come close to the same approach? Aren't there times when our own devotion to self-preservation causes us to back away from those who need our help? Aren't there times when we do nothing because doing something might be uncomfortable? It might cost us. And if we have a whole group of people whose chief priority is looking after themselves, that does way more damage than an attack from outside. That's a recipe for disintegration. But as God's people, we're called to a different way of life. The Apostle Paul described it to the Christians in Philippi. He said to them, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. That does not come naturally for us. But Paul goes on to say that was Jesus' own mindset. That's how he lived. And with the help of his Holy Spirit, we can begin to take on that mindset ourselves. Back in Judges 8, 
we're showing more evidence of disease on the inside of Israel. This time, it's displayed by Israel's leader. Preoccupation with a personal crusade. In this passage, we see Gideon change before our eyes. We see him change from the fearful and hesitant man we met back in chapter 6. If you remember, when we first met Gideon, he was threshing grain in secret. And he needed multiple reassurances from God before he'd do anything. Asking God to burn up his sacrifice and then to make his fleece wet and then to make it dry. But here in chapter 8, the Gideon we know changes into someone we don't recognize at all. And it's not pretty. The first sign of it was the way he dealt with the Ephraimites, just telling them what they wanted to hear so he could get on with what he wanted to do. And now here in Succoth, he doesn't want to get away from these people. He wants something from these people. And when they won't give it, Gideon gets nasty. When they refuse to feed his man, he says in verse 9, verse 7, sorry, just for that, when the Lord has given Zeba and Zalmanah into my hand, I will tear your flesh with desert thorns and briars. From there he went up to Peniel and made the same request of them. But they answered as the man of Succoth had. So he said to the man of Peniel, when I return in triumph, I will tear down this tower. Remember, these are Israelites Gideon is threatening. These are people Gideon is supposedly fighting for. God raised Gideon up to be the deliverer of these people. But here he is promising to thrash them, in the case of Succoth, and tear down their defenses in the case of Peniel. Something is not right here. Now granted, the people of Succoth and Peniel are unpleasant and unhelpful, but that does not change the fact God raised up Gideon to help these people, not to crush them. Gideon leaves them, though, for the time being. He storms off after the Midianites, shouting threats over his shoulder as he goes. And he and his 300 men finally find the Midianite camp. We're told they're camped at Karkor, which historians tell us was about 80 miles further on from Peniel. That means these Midianites are so, so close to home. They must be thinking they're as good as home at this point. Surely Gideon won't chase them this far. Aren't they out of Israel? What would Gideon care if they just disappear out of his life? They're certainly not going to come back. And so verse 11 says, The Midianites are unsuspecting as they lie in their camp getting their breath back. And the Midianites' sense of safety undoes them. Gideon and his 300 rout the Midianites, and he captures their two kings, Ziba and Zalmanna. And then, like a man in a frenzy, Gideon drags those captured kings back to Succoth, where he punishes the leaders of the time. 
He thrashes them with thorns and briars, just like he said he would. And verse 17 adds the detail that on the way past Peniel, he pulls down the tower and he kills the man of the town. I said earlier, the Gideon we see in this chapter is a Gideon we can hardly recognize. He's brutal, he's ruthless, and so far that's just with his own people, the Israelites. What's got into him? Well, in the next verses we learn that Gideon is on a personal crusade. He has lost sight of his calling as leader of God's people. This is all about settling an old score. His 300 men are no longer the Lord's army as far as Gideon's concerned. These 300 are now Gideon's own private army. And verse 18 says, After venting his wrath on Succoth and Peniel, then he asked Ziba and Zalmana, What kind of man did you kill at Tabor? A better translation would be, where are the men you killed at Tabor? As we'll see, Gideon knows what kind of men they were, and he also knows where they are. He is accusing Ziba and Zalmana. He's not asking them for information. So, verse 18, what kind of man did you kill at Tabor? Men like you, they answered, each one with the bearing of a prince. Gideon replied, Those were my brothers, the sons of my own mother. As surely as the Lord lives, if you had spared their lives, I would not kill you. Turning to Jether, his eldest son, he said, kill them. But Jether did not draw his sword because he was only a boy and was afraid. Ziba and Zalmanah said, come, do it yourself. As is the man, so is his strength. So Gideon stepped forward and killed them. Now we know what has been driving Gideon. Even as he responded to the Lord's call, even as he sought courage to obey the Lord, all the while Gideon had this ambition to settle a personal score. Now this is not something we've been told about before. Mount Tabor was north of the valley of Jezreel where the Midianites camped in Israel. And we are not told when this incident happened. It could have been any one of the seven years when the Midianites came into Israel. But at some point, they captured Gideon's brothers and they killed them. Maybe it was because his family were prominent and the Midianites saw them as a threat. Maybe there was no particular reason. Maybe the Midianites just did stuff like that. But ever since, Gideon's desire for vengeance has been bubbling away. And now, he's taken the army given him by God to deliver Israel, and he's used it for his own personal crusade. The word kill appears over and over in verses 18 to 21, and is not referring to killing in the heat of battle. This is cold-blooded payback killing. And you might have noticed where chapters 6 and 7 were chock full of the word of the Lord, 
Since he crossed over the Jordan, Gideon has neither heard nor has he sought to hear the word of the Lord. And there hasn't been a sacrifice or a fleece in sight. That's because Gideon is no longer seeking to do the Lord's will. Gideon now is carrying out his own will, and he's using the Lord's army to do it. When we look at Gideon's son, Jether, in these verses, we're seeing who Gideon used to be. Hesitant, reluctant to strike. But Gideon is not like that anymore. And it's not only the Midianites or even the Israelites who suffer at his hand. He's willing to make his own son choose between doing something he hasn't the stomach to do or refusing to do it and suffering shame in front of all these men, these warriors. We're told in the text, Jether is only a boy. How could Gideon put his son in that position? What an ordeal for a boy. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. The Bible never shies away from justice. It doesn't soft-pedal the need for wrongs to be punished. But here, what we're seeing is a man who's supposed to be serving the Lord and the Lord's people but he's taking advantage of his position to fight a personal war for personal reasons. And when that happens, the damage is big. Certainly, the Israelites themselves don't look good in this chapter. They're selfish. But instead of leading them, Gideon has thrashed them and killed them because they got in the way of Gideon's personal crusade. And this kind of thing is no less ugly when it happens in the church. It's much worse than an attack from outside. When a leader given authority among God's people uses that authority to further his own ambitions and serve his own purposes, Instead of shepherding the flock, he abuses the flock. It's horrible in a church leader, and actually, any of us can fall into this. We can begin to view the people around us not as precious men and women made in the image of God, but we can begin to view them as either stepping stones who can help us to get what we want, or we can begin to view them as obstacles who are getting in the way of what we want. That is destructive in the church. And it comes when any of us pursue our own ambition instead of pursuing the Lord's glory. And ultimately, that is what Gideon does. But it makes it even worse when he tries to disguise it. That's the third sign of disease on the inside of Israel. Pretending to be humble. If 
Verse 22 tells us about the aftermath of Gideon's charge across the Jordan. Apparently, he has now come back across the river. He's back in the heart of Israel, and he has a new reputation as a big man. He's an intimidating warrior who's not to be messed with. And the Israelites love that. Verse 22, the Israelites said to Gideon, rule over us, you, your son and your grandson, because you have saved us from the hand of Midian. But Gideon told them, I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And he said, I do have one request, that each of you give me an earring from your share of the plunder. That's the plunder from the Midianites. Gideon tells the Israelites, I won't rule over you, which makes him seem humble and righteous. And no doubt they're even more impressed with him now. What a guy! He won't even take the crown when we offer it to him. But he does immediately collect their gold, which is what kings did. And later in the passage, we're told he had many wives, which also was what kings did in the nations around Israel. They had a harem. Gideon had many sons, and he even calls one of his sons Abimelech. That sounds like a nice name. What does it mean? Abimelech means my father is king. Which probably tells us all we need to know about Gideon's opinion of himself. There's a saying that well done is better than well said. And that was true in Gideon's case. He said he wouldn't be king but he went ahead and ruled all the same. And verse 27 says, with the gold he collected from his subjects, he made an ephod. It's unclear what exactly that was. The Israelite high priest had an ephod, and we do know what that was. It was a breastplate inlaid with precious stones. But it's unlikely Gideon's ephod was quite like that. But whatever it was, and whatever he intended for it when he made it, it ends up just like the golden calf that Aaron had made long, long before this. Verse 27 says, Gideon put the ephod in Ophrah, his town. And we're told not just the people of Ophrah, but all Israel prostituted themselves by worshiping it there. This golden thing came to be worshipped as a god. What a miserable outcome. Gideon's story, you remember, started in Ophrah, where he bravely responded to God's call and he pulled down, do you remember, an altar to Baal. Well, now we've come full circle. Gideon is back home, but now the idol smasher has become the idol maker. Gideon did so much that was good. 
The last verse of chapter 8 reminds us of that. And we mustn't forget the New Testament book of Hebrews calls Gideon a man of faith. But that just makes it all the more chilling that he could be a man of faith and end up doing so much damage. The good he did at first was marred by his pursuit of personal ambition and personal glory. And the saddest part of it is, this is the first time in the book when one of the judges contributes to the idolatry of Israel. That has not happened before. And it came from Gideon's desire to be thought humble rather than actually being humble. He wouldn't take the crown, but he took the gold. And in his hands, the gold became a snare. Not just to Gideon himself, not just to his family, but to all Israel. And if we seek to apply this to ourselves, we can ask ourselves, do I want to have a reputation for humility more than I actually want to be humble? Do I want to be known as selfless and holy more than I actually want to pursue genuine selflessness and holiness? When you and I are content to fake humility and holiness, and it's not too hard to fake, when we let ourselves be content with faking humility and holiness, we can do terrible damage to the church. Our supposed acts of service can become a snare to the church. Fake Christianity in the church does way more damage than attack from outside the church. So let's examine ourselves. I believe that's what this passage is here to prod us to do. To examine ourselves. Do we have in us a devotion to self-importance and self-preservation that could end up hurting the church? Are we on some personal crusade that could hurt the church? Are you on a crusade for revenge? Are you on a crusade for position? Are we aiming to look humble while we're chasing a bit of personal glory and honor? It's not pleasant to think about those things. Sometimes God word, God's word comes and it just lifts us right up. Other times it comes and it makes us squirm with discomfort. It makes me squirm. 
But always God's word comes for our good. To guide us, to correct us, to redirect us. And always God's word gives us hope. We might be disappointed with ourselves, with our fellow Christians, with our leaders. But God himself is never disappointing. Jesus, our Savior, never trampled on anyone. He never used or abused anyone. Jesus, our Savior, laid aside his glory to come to earth. Then he went even further down and he laid down his life for us. He is the good shepherd. He knows each of his sheep by name. And he doesn't thresh his sheep. The Bible says he gathers his sheep in his arms and he carries them close to his heart. So yes, let's hear the challenge of this passage. Let's take it seriously. Let's examine ourselves. Ask God to show us how we might be on a course to damage his church. But let's not stop with finding our own failures. Let's come back to him with hope for the future. Because in Christ, there is hope for all of us. So let's take a moment to consider these things in God's presence. Let's come to our good shepherd. He knows us. Ask him to show us things we might need to see about ourselves. Let's respond to him personally. And let's remember there is hope in Christ. Let's do that quietly before we close with a song that points us to our hope in Christ. Father, you describe your word as a sword. It pierces us sometimes. You describe it as a hammer. Sometimes it comes to smash the little kingdoms and idols we are building for ourselves. You describe your word as a fire. Sometimes it comes to burn up the dross in our lives. We're thankful that you care enough about us to convict us and challenge us. And we're equally thankful that you cared enough to send us 
a savior from all of these sins. We're thankful that his sacrifice was enough for every sin. And we're glad to be able to turn back again to our great, our all-sufficient Savior and lay our lives again at your feet. Help us to live for you. Amen. Good.
Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, to the only God our Savior be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen.